Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Politics on the New Books Network. I am your host, Bill Scher. Today we are talking to the author of a new biography of Woodrow Wilson, uh, The Moralist, Woodrow Wilson and the World He Made, author Patricia O'Toole. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Bill. Um, Is there any reason in particular why you were compelled to tackle the subject of Woodrow Wilson? I... uh got fascinated by World War One when I was writing a book about Theodore Roosevelt after he was president. Uh, World War One is very much throughout that book. And I wanted to stay with it. So um, writing about the president who was president during World War One seemed a good way to go. Uh, now, I feel these days, w- when Woodrow Wilson comes up in casual conversation, to the extent that he does, or gets gets name-checked in a media piece, it is usually highly negative. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was a racist. Woodrow Wilson uh, was a violator of civil liberties. So you, you, conservatives definitely have an animus towards Wilson, and, and they push some of those lines and you see folks on the left uh, cheer it on. There's, there's, there's not a camp on either side that uh, is really waving the Woodrow Wilson uh, flag anymore these days. Uh, but I, I think as you explore the book, he's a, whether you like him or don't like him, he is enormously consequential as far as the, uh, his impact on not just American history, but global history. That's absolutely right. And his stock does go up and down in the presidential rankings from year to year, depending on uh, all kinds of things. And in the last couple of years, he used to always be in the top four. And now, uh, last year, he was down to uh, number 10. And it's largely about race, uh, which we can talk about the reasons for when you'd like. And also about internationalism has fallen out of play, out of favor. You know, we have um, nationalism alive and uh, kicking both in the United States and in other countries. There's much less appetite for global cooperation than there was, uh, say, uh, at the beginning of the Obama administration. So those two things tend to drive his stock price down. Uh, I, I do want to talk about uh, the race question, but uh, his impact on history, I think, is uh, much more related to the internationalist question, but all, but also domestic policy. And maybe we should start domestic because that's where the first term his focus was. He he didn't run as Mister League of Nations in 1912. Uh, his first order of business was trying to bring a progressive economic agenda to Washington. And uh, my sense of it is, even though he has this reputation of being uh, the sort of imperious moralist, as, as you, the tally of your book suggests, uh, he was fairly canny and compromising in trying to get that domestic agenda through. Yes, he was. And he also had two excellent handlers in Congress, um, one in the House and one in the Senate. And they were able to do a lot of arm twisting and jawboning uh, that 
saved him having to do those kinds of things. Uh, and the, the situation was this. Uh, his, his domestic uh, legislative record in his first term was the most important that he, he accomplished more than any other president before him, and only two presidents since have done as well or better, legislatively speaking, FDR and LBJ. Uh, and one reason he did well is that the country was ready for the economic reforms he wanted to make. They'd been talked about for a long time. And another is that he had Democratic majorities in the House and in the Senate for the first six years of his presidency. So it's much easier to get things done when you have that wind at your back. Um, and the uh, the big legislative achievements, I mean, they're still with us. He, he's the president who got the Federal Reserve up and running. Um, we got a new antitrust act that's still, uh, it's, it's been tweaked and modified over the years, but it's still kind of the basis of our um, anti-monopoly uh, thoughts about uh, large corporations in this country. Um, there's a federal trade commission um, that's about fair competition uh, that, that he established. And then the modern income tax, uh, which... Um, that was very important. Before that, most of the tax revenues came, they were things that were slapped, they were tariffs slapped on imports that came to the United States. And that tended to hurt um, the less affluent uh, part of the country, most of the country. Uh, so switching to an income tax that actually half the people didn't have to pay. And, and by the way, the top bracket in the first round of this was 7%. So if we want to make America great again, we could start there with Wilson's first income tax. Um, so all of these things, I mean, these are institutions that have now been around for more than 100 years and people can um, complain about, about them, but they function pretty well. So he had to make um, uh, one big, um, he had to make a number of compromises, but the one that is has been talked about most often in recent years is um, in order to get Southern votes, um, which he needed to pass these giant economic reforms, he had to, the Southerners asked for, and he had to agree to give them a sign that he wasn't going to use this great expansion of federal authority in other realms, like to, to end segregation. You know, that's what the Southerners were worried about. They immediately saw that these big business reforms were going to mean more federal authority and they didn't want the federal government coming to the South and telling them they had to get rid of all their laws related to white supremacy. So um, they asked for a sign that he wouldn't do that. And the sign that they wanted was that he would resegregate the civil service of the United States, which had been one of the few bright spots for uh, blacks in, in the United States in terms of employment. It was a real leg up into the middle class. The civil service wasn't nearly as big then it is, as it is now, but it was still for blacks in Washington. That was the, if you could get a civil service job, you could make a transition from being poor to coming in, into the middle class. Uh, so, um, he agreed to this. He didn't think this up as a way to get the votes. It was the Southerners who asked for it. And uh, so when people call him a racist, that's correct. But he wasn't like a racist who was out there advocating lynching or uh, violence or even white supremacy. Um, this was a bargain that he cut in order to get these votes. And he was willing to do it 
because he thought that overall these these four reforms would be things that would uh, they certainly didn't help everybody. They left out women, for example, in in most ways. Um, but that it was how to do the greatest good for the greatest number. These four big reforms. So it was just a price um, that he had to pay. So, because when he's often discussed lately, uh, I feel like he is characterized as someone who was deeply racist, who was eager to uh, bring back segregation, turn the clock back. So not a man of his time, but someone who actively pushed to make America uh, worse on race relations than when he arrived. Uh, And in another biography I've read of Wilson, uh, John Milton Cooper's, he suggested that 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 wasn't quite right because Wilson whatever racist sentiments he had, he, 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 it wasn't a racist the way you would think of it as uh, it came out of the South at the time, even though Wilson was born and raised in the South, but he had more of a Northern mentality towards race. Now, he didn't want to talk about it. He, he wanted it to go away. <laughs> and therefore, he was susceptible to being pushed by other, other Southerners. You, you think that's fair? Yes, I, I agree with John Cooper about that and uh, many other things. Um, it's a hard thing to talk about now because it sounds like you're defending racism. And the, the racism, for me, like the parallels are um, with, uh, you know, we've, we've had this great upsurge of talk, the whole Me Too movement. And there's, there's misbehavior uh, between the sexes and men, you know, not uh, being gentlemen. Um, and then there's outright assault and rape. And it's, it's as if we don't have the color, um, we, it's all black and white now. You know, so an Al Franken gets thrown in, uh, thrown under the bus in the way a Harvey Weinstein gets thrown under the bus. And we need to, we need more shades between black and white uh, to discuss these things. And it's, it's not, um, it's not that you're defending them, but to lump everything together is, is just doesn't begin to capture what's going on. And when I first uh, learned about Wilson's um, racism uh, in 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 connection with um, the segregation, um, I uh, thought, as many people do, well, he was a man of his time, and he was also a Southerner. That's where this comes from, um, and he was a man of his time. Socially, in terms of social conventions, in a lot of ways, it's very slow to support um, the women, a, a constitutional amendment for um, women's voting, for example. Um, but uh, he, he was also, um, he wanted to be thought of as an enlightened progressive. And the enlightened progressives of his day were working for racial equality. And the white ones who had money in the North were helping to found uh, things like the NAACP. And they were doing a lot of things to advance advance racial equality. And Wilson couldn't go that far. So he couldn't, you know, he was not, in terms of race, an enlightened progressive. In terms of economics, he was much more an enlightened progressive. Um, So you can't, I don't think you can let him off the hook because he was born in in the 1850s in the South and that he just grew up with these attitudes. He did believe that segregation was the key to harmony between the races, that you just didn't mix things up and then you just didn't have any trouble. That was, he couldn't think of a better social arrangement than that. But the, the curious thing, um, I, 
I don't think any other biographer ever picked up on this, but um, on occasion he would have people into his office, sometimes white liberals and sometimes um, black leaders of like church leaders and college presidents and that sort of thing in to talk to him about this segregation of the civil service. And um, there are two, there are record, good records of two meetings and what happened to him immediately after those meetings. These meetings were profoundly upsetting to him. And he was sick. He was physically ill after both of them. And I think uh, he was a man who really liked having the moral high road. Um, and he, uh, when he didn't have it, and he, I think he knew that on this question of race, he didn't have it, but he couldn't think how to solve this problem. And it really bothered him. It bothered him so much that it made him ill, um, which, uh, I mean, you don't have to forgive him for that, but it's, it's an indication of how tormented he was by this question. And in the, in the recent discussion that, well, there are two, just two things to add. One is Wilson was the one who started this, this kind of thing of making these devil's bargains with the Southerners over, uh, social matters. But, um, this went on until LBJ was president. And in these discussions, people don't really talk about that. Um, but this is this was the bargain that presidents had to make when they wanted Southern votes for liberal reforms. You know, uh, Social Security, when that was introduced, it's introduced really on the backs of African-Americans. They didn't say that blacks could not be eligible for Social Security, but they said uh, they excluded farm workers and domestics because those were the jobs mainly held by uh, blacks back in 1935 when Social Security came into being. So it's a it's a problem that was with us for a long time after Wilson. Uh, let me shift gears to the uh, the international questions. Uh, after the first term, he runs for re-election on the pledge he kept us out of war. Uh, but in the run-up to that, he had this big fight with the Secretary of State, William Jennings Bryan, who was more of an isolationist. And after uh, Germany, uh, we, we get tangled up with Germany over the Lusitania attack. Um, Wilson's trying to walk this fine line between not jumping into war, but not uh, being overly deferential to the Germans after they attacked uh, the ship. Uh, uh but Brian feels that Wilson is being too belligerent, doesn't believe in any sort of military preparedness. He quits the administration and goes cross-country to try to stop a military preparedness bill. Uh, Wilson wins that argument, uh, get, wins the bill, essentially wins the upper hand in terms of the party's direction. Um, but still doesn't seem to want to go to war. Uh, so uh, where do you get from uh, Wilson being a product of the William Jennings Bryan party uh, to becoming, uh, making central, not just entering into the war, but trying to make it the war to end all wars and establishing a League of Nations and having that be the crown jewel of his administration, or at least the attempted crown jewel? Well, he, he really uh, entered the war with um, great reluctance. Um, in the beginning of um, our neutrality, he, he one thing he was very worried about was that at that point, the United States is a nation of immigrants, very recent immigrants, either uh, 
with 35% of the population who were either immigrants or children of immigrants, including Wilson, whose mother came to the United States from England as a little girl. Um, so he worries that if the United States would enter the war in 1914, 1915, you would have a mini version of the war in the United States with German-American citizens and British-American citizens, you know, going at it hammer and tongs. So he didn't feel that he had any public sentiment behind him, except um, the Northeasterners who, the Northeastern upper crust who were really transatlantic. You know, they were Henry Cabot Lodge, for example, liked to go to Bayreuth in Germany to listen to the opera in the summer. That's where he was when World War One broke out. So those people are, um, it's interesting, they're conservative Republicans, but they're much more internationalist that in their sentiments than the Democrats are. Um, so Wilson, and, and they were much uh, more eager to, especially after the, the uh, sinking of the Lusitania, they're much more eager to enter the war um, on the Allied side and get the thing over with. Um, Wilson can't see it, and he's, he's saying he's still hoping that he can mediate an end to the war. He offered that in the very beginning, the opening weeks of the war. And then he made a couple other offers, um, and both sides burned him because each side thought it was going to win. So, you know, they, they had gained things and lost things, and they weren't going to quit uh, just because it wasn't nice to make war. They were going to continue till somebody decisively won. So he was rejected. And finally, in February of 1917, it was the submarine that um, uh, made things uh, change. Um, the Germans had, he had like had all these negotiations with the Germans to get them to at least try very hard not to strike neutral, not to torpedo neutral ships and passenger liners. And then in, uh, and they would agree to some of these things. There were some moments when, you know, Wilson seemed to have the upper hand here. Um, and then in February of 1917, the Germans decided that they were going to have no holds barred submarine warfare. And Wilson had to reckon with that. And he realized that he could no longer successfully argue that that was not a threat to the interests of the United States. And the, the Germans were saying, you know, when we win World War I, we're going to uh, continue expanding in the world. And the great place to do that would be the Western Hemisphere. They weren't thinking of the United States so much, but um, South America, where they had a lot of economic relationships. So, um, and, and the United States for almost a century had been the self-appointed guardian of the Western Hemisphere, keeping the Europeans out. So Wilson really feels at this point that U.S. interests, the national interests of the United States, require him to enter the war. And as you pointed out, the only way he can really do this is to make it a moral argument. This is the war to end all war. Um, he, he talked some when in his war address about, you know, the threat to the interests of the United States, but he turned it into, you know, this is a, it would be a, an immoral thing not to do it. We have We have a moral obligation to enter this war and help uh, the people who were attacked in this war, namely the Allies, uh, win. Because if Germany wins, the entire world will become an armed camp, is how he looked at it. Uh, we're talking with Patricia O'Toole, author of The Moralist, Woodrow Wilson and the World He Made. Uh, so when Wilson does enter the war, he successfully 
ends the war. Um, he, he doesn't want to crush Germany. Uh, some some want him to sort of keep going with the war and uh, really break their back, but he wanted to get to a point where they could achieve uh, world peace. Uh, he's greeted, he, he travels to France, he's greeted like a conquering hero with millions in Paris wel- welcoming him. Uh, and yet it, go, it goes south relatively quickly. Um, do you feel that the compromises he made I, mean, I guess this is sort of this paradox here he he's making all these compromises in the treaty to get all the other nations on board with his idea of a league of nations which many other nations don't really care as much about and then he comes home to sell it and he's attacked for being uncompromising uh, uh, do, is, is there is there something about his personality that you thought was ill-suited to this task or uh was it health? Was it that his the the, the stroke that eventually felled him was uh, simmering inside, uh, and he and his mental faculties weren't as sharp as they were during his first term? Uh, well, it's a bundle of all those things, I think. Um, but uh, you know, he goes abroad, and he's he's worried. He's on the ship going abroad to the peace conference, and he's worried that um, the expectations are so high that there's going to be what he calls a tragedy of disappointment that, you know, what uh, the mess that was created by world war one was huge all over the world. And um, there's like no ideal way to address all the problems that need to be addressed. So he understands that there's a great potential for um, something less than the ideal uh, just and generous peace that he has had in mind for more than a year. Um, and, uh, he, he was ill-suited to the task and he didn't ask for enough help. He took, um, he created an American commission to negotiate peace, um, consisting of himself and four other people. One of them, the secretary of state, Robert Lansing, who was a very accomplished international lawyer, but they didn't get along well. Uh, Lansing had to swallow a lot from Wilson Wilson didn't treat him very well, didn't ask his advice on many things. And, and when Lansing thought it was important, he would offer it anyway, usually in a memo of some sort. And Wilson would sometimes not even respond to the memo. And he could have used Lansing's help on a lot of fronts, one of which is to negotiate. Because Wilson, this is a real flaw in Wilson, he, he disapproves of negotiation. He, he's not good at it, and he basically disapproves of it. He thinks that it's a good leader is one who maybe gets advice from people in the beginning, but then he thinks and makes up his mind, settles on the best course, uh, and then talks other people into it. So he thought that, you know, having the best idea and persuading other people to accept it was a nobler way to go than negotiating. He thought whenever you negotiate, you lose something. So therefore, you're going to end up with less than uh, a really wonderful, uh, you know, the wonderful solution that you have in mind. So um, Lloyd George of England and Clemenceau of France are, they're very at home with negotiation, uh, compromise, all those things that Wilson, make Wilson really uncomfortable. So Wilson resists. And when you read the minutes of their discussions, you can see him arguing very well for his point of view, but they're just not having it. You know, they have their own uh, national 
political agendas, and he's got one. He's really thinking of the world. He, you know, the British and the French want the Germans to pay for a lot of damage that they did. Uh, the United States doesn't want that. So Wilson thinks of himself as, you know, the advocate um, for the world and for world peace. So they give him the League of Nations, and um, uh, then he's kind of spent his political capital. Um, and he wasn't really able to get, he was able to temper some of their demands, um, but not really very many. Um, so he didn't, he didn't fare all that well as a negotiator um, at the Paris Peace Conference. But then having signed this treaty, he feels honored to, you know, to his, to the rest of the world, all the other countries who signed it, to take it home and get it ratified in exactly the form um, that it was uh, created in in Paris. And um, he thinks his ace in the hole here, in, he knows he has to get the Senate to ratify it, but the Senate has never failed up to this point to ratify a peace treaty. So he thinks that will happen. And he just misread the mood of the country. And then it didn't help. He collapsed. He went on a speaking tour when things were not going well with the Senate. He went on a speaking tour. These had been successful for him in the past. He was a marvelous speaker, the greatest speaker of his age. So he thinks if he goes out and talks to the country and they write to the, their senators, so the senators will think, well, I have to vote for this treaty or the people at home won't reelect me. Um, but the country was just in a, in a different mood. Um, you know, just uh, switched, like, kind of like what happened in 2016. We had, a, you know, something going on for eight years that uh, a lot of people liked. They reelected Obama. Um, the economy did well. Um, and then in 2016, there was just this turn to something completely different. And it was a little bit like that in 19, you know, 1919 when he comes home up till the election of 19. 19- the country is just in a in a different mood. Is that partly because he was so focused on the League of Nations project that he didn't put the same amount of thought into a post-war economic transition and therefore the country was grappling with economic shocks and didn't care so much about internationalism? Well, the country um, thought internationalism was nice, but it had never been tried before. So maybe it would be better to, you know, have a piece kind of based on uh, uh, what had happened in the war. And then we get back to um, business as usual. And most Americans actually didn't really care that much about foreign affairs. You, you, when you read the newspapers, the newspapers are caring about it. But um, most people just kind of want to like get back to uh, normal. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine that uh, return to normalcy would excite um, a landslide election, but that was, that was Harding's platform. You know, we want to get back to not having the government running so many things. And Wilson, because he was ill, um, uh, he, he got ill in Paris and he never really got well. And he was tired when he went off on this trip and he's not paying enough attention to uh, what's going on in, in the economy. And a lot of things need, like railroads had been nationalized. I think the telegraphs had been nationalized. A lot of businesses had been nationalized for the war, just so that the, they could be centrally run and avoid, um, uh, well, he just 
there were a lot of czars running um, <laughs> running uh, various aspects of, of World War One. It really worked pretty well, but then you know the war is over and we need to get back to back to normal, and that wasn't happening. And you stop, you know, we got very rich during um, World War One, producing uh, goods not only for our armed forces, but we for four years had been supplying uh, the allies, lending them money. So the whole country is really rich and all of a sudden that's not happening anymore. So there was a huge economic dislocation. We're coming up on the 100th anniversary of the 1919 uh, Paris talks. And often when they get analyzed, they are analyzed negatively as uh, another chapter of uh, Western imperialism, carving up the world uh, and not, uh, I mean, Wilson wanted to be seen as a force for democratization, but this was an, uh, arguably a extension of colonization. Uh, but how, how much do you balance the compromises he made there with the fact that even though the League of Nations didn't fully get off the ground on his watch, uh, FDR and Harry Truman end up taking that torch uh, and directly wanting to fulfill Wilson's vision with the United Nations, which then becomes a force for democratization, anti-colonization. Is there, is there a way to, to square the two uh, lines of thought? Yes, that's a really interesting question, and it's it's something that historians argue about. You know, some historians say, well, when FDR came along, he just wrinkled up, you know, and tore up uh, the Wilson blueprint and started over. And I see it more as uh, FDR, who had been an assistant secretary of the Navy all through the Wilson administration, and he's a very politically ambitious young man, and he's watching everything Wilson does and analyzing it and thinking, yeah, this is good the way he's handling this and how he you know, he gets his way with this. And no, this isn't working. You know, he should be more flexible on that. So he's really watching Wilson and, and thinking about what works and what doesn't work. Um, and certainly watching the league fight um, in the Senate. Uh, and when, um, as soon as the United States entered World War II, FDR got a team of people together and said, we're going to need another going to need a successor to the League of Nations, and the League of Nations was ineffective, so let's figure out why and let's figure out what we should do differently. So I see FDR as, as um, Wilson 2.0, you know, that, and a lot of the language in the, the uh, charter of the UN is drawn directly from the covenant of the League of Nations. That was a way of paying homage to what um, Wilson had done, and uh, actually, you know, kind of carrying those ideals uh, forward. So um, the big difference between the Charter for the UN and the Covenant of the League of Nations is that the League was supposed to do everything, all these handle all these international challenges. And the team of people working for FDR said, you know what, that put a terrific burden on one organization. So let's come up with a way to, we'll have the United Nations um, committed to X, Y, and Z, and then we'll create these other international institutions, some of which could be regional, some of which could be global, to handle specific aspects of keeping the world uh, on a, a stable footing. So you get um, organizations like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank as kind of global things, 
and then organizations like NATO as regional things. So it was a it was a different model, but it was kind of rooted in what Wilson had started, and it's like a big revision of um, what Wilson did. Uh, to close out, uh, we here on uh, New Books and Politics, we give our super fans the opportunity to ask uh, questions. I had a couple submitted. Uh, one is. How much of Wilsonian how much of Wilsonianism is original to him and how much is repackaged British thought? And the second question is um, uh, Teddy Roosevelt was somewhat of a moralist as well. Why don't people think of him in the terms as much as they do for Wilson? Uh, those are really good questions. And um, certainly Wilson in his internationalist ideals was influenced by uh, British thinkers and uh, but he's the he's the statesman who kind of packaged it and presented it to the world in a way that the world voted on to create this international organization of government. So you know he's 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 got his head full of ideas, and the British were um, helping him um, to read about the British role in the creation of the League of Nations. Makes you realize that in Britain there was a very active uh, movement of all kinds of people, probably. Um, starting pretty actively in the 1890s toward, you know, some like international institutions at the very least, if not a league. So um, that's very key. And the, if the British had not supported Wilson in the creation of the League of Nations at Paris, I don't think it ever would have happened. Um, they were, they very much favored the idea and um, uh, were very helpful to him in getting it up and running. The French were kind of like, well, if you want this, fine, but you know, we're going to uh, entrust our security to ourselves, uh, more or less. Um, and uh, got a question about Teddy Roosevelt's comparison. Yeah, about Teddy Roosevelt. Um, uh, a really wonderful book to read is by the John Cooper we were talking about earlier. It's called The Warrior and the Priest. And it's a dual biography of these two men who are sim- so similar and, you know, they're uh, politically active in the same era, the progressive era. Um, and they're more alike than they are different, even though they were pretty uh, hot-headed rivals of each other. Um, and um, Teddy Roosevelt was a more, he was a more, this comes down to personality, I think. Um, and he was a more accessible kind of guy. Um, when you're writing about Theodore Roosevelt, which I have done, uh, for any day of his life, he's out and about talking to all kinds of people, unless he's got a cold and he has to stay home. Um, and those people were excited to meet him. And so there are like endless anecdotes about him for every day of his life. With Wilson, Wilson is a calm thinker who likes to be with his family. So when he doesn't have business, he has to conduct in his office, he's often upstairs in the White House in his study, uh, taking care of um, the business, you know, memos he has to read and think about, um, thinking about his policies. And he's just a much more interior kind of guy. So I think that's that's one difference. And uh, Roosevelt, the other one, the other difference is Roosevelt was, uh, one of his cabinet members said, he was the most advisable man I ever met. So he was happy to change his mind. He wasn't like unprincipled, but if you if he had a point of view about something based on certain facts and you came to him and said, Mr. President, those facts just aren't right. You know, the situation now is this. 
Therefore, the way to deal it, deal with it is not the idea that you have, but we should be doing this over here. And he was happy to change his mind based on better ideas, very open to other ideas. And Wilson, he would be open-minded in the beginning of something, but once he had made up his mind, and many, many observers said this about him, it was just impossible to change his mind. He would not compromise. So the ultimate tragedy here is that when the Senate fight over the League of Nations uh, and the Treaty of Versailles uh, was going on, Wilson could have had 98% of what he wanted if he had agreed to the compromises the Republicans were asking for, and he just wouldn't do it. And the question is, is it his stubbornness that was a part of his character, or was it the fact that, that by this point he had been felled by a stroke and he was just even more rigid than ever? We'll never know. The book is The Moralist, Woodrow Wilson and the World He Made, published by Simon & Schuster. Patricia O'Toole, thanks so much for being on New Books and Politics. Thanks, Bill. It was really a pleasure.